You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today announcing the next barry boys live event tom myers and i will be hosting drum roll please not the oscars thank god the fifth annual gannick apple awards brought to you by the guides association of new york city that ceremony will be held on monday march 4th at the sva theater at 333 west 23rd street gannick is an association of independent professional tour guides They are one of the oldest and most active tour guide associations in America, and they've been giving out awards celebrating New York City culture, tourism, and preservation for five years now. We've been honored to win a couple of these awards, and so now here we are hosting them. We're going to pull our best hybrid of Hugh Jackman and Ellen DeGeneres. Who knows what madness we'll bring to this ceremony. Tickets are now on sale, and they have early bird specials for those who buy early. So visit gannick.org, that's G-A-N-Y-C dot org for more details. The Bowery Boys episode 280, The House of Mystery, the story of the Collier Brothers. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, and with Tom away from the show this week, I thought I would alter the format just a little bit, experiment here, to visit a very unusual subject. The story that you are about to hear, the strange, strange story of the Collier Brothers, many of you have actually requested this subject as a possible episode of our show, but as you'll see, this can't really be told in the same manner as some of the others. New York City, crammed with 8.6 million people, is filled with the stories of people who just want to be left alone. Recluses, hermits, cloistering themselves from the public eye, closing themselves off from scrutiny. Eccentric heiresses who never left the confines of Gilded Age mansions, Or popular icons like J.D. Salinger or Greta Garbo, who sought an ounce of privacy while living in the largest city in America. But none of these people attempted to seal themselves off so completely in the way that Homer and Langley Collier attempted in the 1930s and 1940s. Their story is infamous. And going several steps further to be left alone... They, in effect, drew attention to themselves and to their crumbling Fifth Avenue mansion, dubbed by the press 
the Harlem House of Mystery. To the children of the neighborhood in Harlem during the 1940s, the decaying old mansion at the corner of 5th Avenue and 128th Street was a source of delightful fascination. Its doors and windows were shuttered, the stoop broken and uncared for, and even the sidewalks surrounding the house smelled rotting and old. This was not a haunted house of the kind that kids often imagine, although at one time there was a sign on the front door claiming, this is a ghost house. But this failed to scare off trespassers. Sometimes children threw rocks through the window to incite the residents within. At times, very late at night, a boarded-up door behind the house cracked open, and a disheveled man in rags left the mansion to wander the city at all hours, only to return before the sun came up. The older residents of the block recalled that two men allegedly lived there, ghosty men, as they were called, but people only ever saw one figure emerge from the house, and many assumed that the other man, the other brother, was most certainly dead somewhere inside. No light ever came from inside the Harlem House of Mystery, no loud voices, only at times the sound of music, beautiful music, that managed to escape past dusty stacks of newspapers and boxes and out through the boarded-up windows. It was the sound of a piano playing the nocturnes of Chopin with impressive skill. There wasn't just one piano in the house, though. There were 14 pianos. Homer and Langley Collier were descendants of two prominent families in New York. In the mid-19th century, had you spoken of the Collier brothers, you would have been referring to their grandfather, William Collier, and his many brothers, all of whom became shipbuilders in the decades following the construction of the Erie Canal. Their large shipyards along the East River would produce both clipper ships for trade on the high seas and steamships for local travel. But William's son Herman, born in 1857, would leave shipbuilding to his elders and chose to pursue a medical career. It was while he attended New York University in 1878 that he married a beautiful young opera singer named Susie Gage Frost Collier, a dark-haired beauty who had once graced the stage of New York's prestigious Academy of Music. The young couple soon moved into a house in the heart of the Murray Hill neighborhood, and it was there that Susie would give birth to two sons, Homer, born in 1881, and little brother Langley in 1885. Dr. Collier's sons, Homer and Langley, were groomed for an elite way of life at the perimeter of New York society and wealth. As older men, they would celebrate many alleged connections to old money and the bluest of American blood. 
Their family even touted a tangential connection to the old Livingston clan, with its deep colonial roots, filled with former mayors and governors, war heroes, and founding fathers. Their highly cultured mother Susie raised them to value all the pretenses of high society, giving them music lessons, reading to them in Greek and Latin at home, joining them every Sunday on a carriage ride down to their pew at Trinity Church on Wall Street. But despite its potentially desirable address, their first home has been variously described as a tenement or a cold water flat. And there was another mark which may have hampered their social ambitions. Herman Collier and Susie Collier were first cousins, an arrangement which was by no means illegal in New York during the Gilded Age, but was certainly frowned upon in some quarters of polite society. Both Homer and Langley graduated from Columbia University at the start of the 20th century, a university which had only a few years before relocated to a spacious new campus in Morningside Heights. Homer studied law and Langley engineering, but soon Langley became more interested in emulating his mother's career in music. He even embarked upon a career as a concert pianist. Later, he claimed to have performed at Carnegie Hall. But he would add, quote, Paderewski followed me. He got better notices than I. So what was the use of going on? The Polish pianist Jan Paderewski would indeed perform at Carnegie Hall over 90 times between 1891 and 1931. So while this fact is undocumented, it is possible that Langley Collier did play there. But despite a myriad of social opportunities, neither Homer nor Langley ever married. In fact, even after graduation, they continued to live with their parents in Murray Hill, a peculiar family unit in a city which had evolved dramatically since their grandfathers had first constructed ships on the East River. In 1909, Mr. and Mrs. Collier made a decision that would change their adult son's lives forever. Herman and Susie moved their family to an elegant row house at 2078 Fifth Avenue on 128th Street in the neighborhood of Harlem. Two major changes in New York City in the 19th century helped to transform the former village of Harlem into an urban residential neighborhood. The first was the development of Central Park which vastly elevated property values along its perimeter, creating the districts of the Upper East and the Upper West Sides. Harlem is north of the park, but the city's sudden surge north led many to speculate that this former village would soon become desirable to New York's upwardly mobile classes. By the late 1870s, elevated railroads brought more people into Harlem, inspiring the development of single-family row houses. In 1879, the developer George J. Hamilton built a row of five Neogrec townhouses upon a wide lot here at Fifth Avenue and 128th Street. A stroll around this area of Harlem today reveals that a great many buildings from this period are still standing. In fact, three of the five townhouses that Mr. Hamilton built here on 128th Street still survive. Only two have vanished including the one on the corner, the subject of our story, 2078 Fifth Avenue. 
Mr. Hamilton actually lived in that four-story mansion for several decades until 1909 when he sold the house to the Collier family. It was an important step up for the Colliers, now owners of a handsome home in a neighborhood where real estate values were sure to rise, an extension of the wealthy white enclaves of downtown Manhattan. By this point, Dr. Collier had become quite prominent in the field of gynecology in New York, working at several medical institutions around the city, including City Hospital out on Blackwell's Island, where all the city's most, quote, unpleasant facilities were located. Every morning, Dr. Collier left his home on 128th Street with a canoe over his shoulders, which he used to get to work, rowing down the Harlem River into the East River, past Blackwell Island's Greystone Lighthouse to the shoreline, a journey he would retrace every evening. Susie Collier had turned their 128th Street row house into a tastefully decorated home with hand-painted frescoes upon the ceiling, rich gold wallpaper, and a Victorian drawing room with furniture arrayed around a piano that had allegedly been given to Mrs. Collier by Queen Victoria herself. In Dr. Collier's study were thousands of medical books upon old oak shelves and other curiosities in glass jars, specimens of human deformities. But the bliss slowly faded at the Collier residence. Slowly, over the decade, Herman and Susie began drifting apart, with the doctor spending more time away from home, even as Susie and her sons began spending more time never leaving it. At one point, Herman wanted to open an actual sanitarium within the house itself, perhaps some kind of a clinic to treat women in the Harlem area. To this, Susie strongly objected. Dr. Collier moved out of the Collier's Harlem home and into an apartment on the Upper West Side. And it was here that Dr. Herman Collier died in 1923. Homer and Langley Collier never left their mother's side during this period, even as Homer pursued a career in real estate law and Langley, who had now slowly backed away from this promising music career, had become a piano tuner. They made quite a trio. To quote journalist Helen Warden Erskine, quote, It was the mother who made all the decisions. They lived for her, she for them. And it was then that they began to withdraw. Outside of their windows on 128th Street, American history would change. But they would have no part of it. Harlan had already begun this remarkable change from the moment they moved in. But a change at first imperceptible from their posh Victorian drawing room. New York's growing African-American population had started to move into the neighborhood, attracted to a large number of new residential options fueled by the opening of the subway in 1904. Soon, black real estate developers were promoting properties specifically for African-Americans wishing to escape the prejudice of mostly white downtown neighborhoods. White homeowners in Harlem saw this influx of new black residents as a threat to their land values, to their ways of life. 
Community groups did everything within their power to demonize their new black neighbors, fueled by a resurgence of openly racist sentiment against African Americans in the late 1910s. Most of those businesses on 125th Street barred blacks from theaters, from hotels and restaurants, and from nightclubs. But this hostility did nothing to curb the increase of black residents to central Harlem. As a result, the older Harlem residents of German or English heritage would soon abandon the neighborhood, fleeing to the boroughs or eventually to the brand new suburbs. But the Colliers, they didn't leave. They simply retreated. Now, it was clear that the Colliers had money. Unfounded rumors in the decades to come here would suggest millions of dollars stashed away in forgotten places. But perhaps, with her husband gone, Susie Collier understood she would never live in so fine a place as her mansion here on 128th Street. Perhaps if she simply kept to herself, if her sons could complete the illusion, they could continue to live as they once had. From the recollections of a taxi driver who frequently drove the Colliers to their destination, quote, once a week, Langley Collier would send for me to take him and his mother to the opera. Even then, the doors were all closed and the shutters drawn at 2078 Fifth Avenue. Very quietly, one of the big front storm doors would open and out would come Langley and then his mother. He wore striped pants and a Prince Albert. The mother was dressed in black, usually a fur coat and gloves and a long black veil. It hid her face. As Langley helped her to the taxi, he would say, The Metropolitan Opera, please. Susie Gage Frost Collier died in her home here on January 27, 1929. By the request of her two sons, her body was removed by the undertaker through a first-floor window in the middle of the night. I could find no explanation for why this was done, but going forward, those front doors would rarely be opened by anybody. Homer continued to work at City Title Insurance Company on Wall Street, although his appearance had become rather unconventional, with gray shoulder-length hair, a stiff white collar, silk cravat, and clothes better suited for a Gilded Age dinner party. He walked to work 8.2 miles every day from Harlem to the tip of Manhattan, most likely to avoid the crowds of mass transit. And one day, he simply stopped coming in. In 1932, the Curious Brothers decided something oddly normal-sounding to invest in neighborhood real estate. Just a few years before, the city announced plans to build the Triborough Bridge, connecting Manhattan to Queens and the Bronx. And although the Great Depression slowed down work on the bridge considerably, Homer, who was an avid reader of the news, believed its construction would revitalize real estate values in their neighborhood. So in 1932, they purchased the building across the street, 2077, Fifth Avenue, for $7,500, or about $132,000 today, and they paid for it in cash. 
by this time, their own home had been effectively taken off the grid. The telephone was disconnected, and the electricity and gas had been turned off. And we've stopped opening our mail, Langley told their real estate agent. You can't imagine how free we feel. One evening, Homer and Langley made an impromptu appearance at their real estate agent's Gramercy Park home late one night. As a thank you for helping them with the deal, Langley turned to the agent's piano and played a bit of Chopin for him. At 2 a.m., they left the agent's house, returning to Harlem to discover that somebody had attempted to break into their home. By this time, these rumors of their supposed wealth had spread, and that their house was filled with items of great value, and that there was money possibly hiding in the walls. It was then that Homer and Langley vowed to never leave the house at the same time ever again, and if they ever did leave together, it was to go no further than the curb. Homer needed his brother's assistance in getting around, because at some point in the mid-1930s, he went blind. We can't be sure of exactly why, because the two brothers never went to the doctor. As a police sergeant later said, quote, Homer said he and Langley knew too much about doctors. Their father was one. They were enclosed within a mansion filled with thousands of medical books, and Langley knew he could help cure his brother on his own. He quit his work as a piano tuner to take care of Homer full-time, leaving the house at night only while his brother slept. Langley took books off the shelf and began reading to his brother by the light of a kerosene lamp, playing music for hours on one of the house's many pianos, carefully tuned in shadow, and fed his brother a unique diet that was thought might cure him. 100 oranges a week, peanut butter, and black bread. At night, Langley would escape by the back door and would wander the city, dragging a wooden box behind him, gathering up provisions. Assuming that his brother was going to get better, he also began buying newspapers and collected them into stacks for his brother to read at a later date. Langley also attempted to generate his own electricity by using the insides of a Model T, which had somehow made its way into the basement. Soon their house developed a notorious reputation in the neighborhood. James Baldwin, the future novelist and literary voice of the civil rights movement, went to school nearby the Collier's house and walked by the deteriorating home every day. Naturally, people began whispering of Langley's late-night wanderings, of the wooden box that he dragged down the street. Some suggested that Langley was bringing Hoffins back to bury in the basement, that Homer had been murdered by his brother, that in fact the bodies of the entire Collier family had been buried underneath the house. This renewed attention only made Langley more paranoid of possible break-ins. He began bringing strange odds and ends into the house, anything from rusted baby carriages to old wine bottles, and crafted a number of booby traps to capture any intruders. Tin beer cans were nailed to the floors to trip up burglars, and as the house became more crowded with stacks of objects, Langley built tunnels fitted with trip wires, turning the old Victorian drawing room, the kitchen, their father's study, into a dark and dusty maze. All the while, his primary concern was for Homer, who was now also stricken with rheumatism 
keeping him virtually paralyzed in a nest that had been constructed by his brother in the parlor. Homer was later quoted as saying, All we want is for people to leave us alone. A man's home is his castle. What we do inside it is our business. But this is not possible. A house is connected to a city by its pipes and wires, and its owners by finances and contracts. A structure can be neglected within reason, but as it withers and deteriorates, it becomes a danger to the other buildings surrounding it. Closing the doors and shutters keeps out the world, but close them too tightly and for too long, and the world takes notice. The first unwanted exposure of the Collier brothers' strange existence came in the summer of 1938, courtesy of a random piece of property in Jamaica, Queens, property that their father Herman had actually purchased many years before. It had, of course, sat unused, and a real estate developer named Maurice Gruber began inquiring into buying it. He went by the Collier's mansion, banging daily upon the door to speak with them. This curious scene was soon picked up by newspapers who thought that the idea of a rich hermit in Manhattan might be of interest to readers in the waning years of the Great Depression. Believe it or not, the story made national news. From a newspaper in Palm Beach, Florida, the headline, Another multi-millionaire recluse found in battered brownstone house in New York. Quote, the new man of mystery is Langley Collier, reputed landlord of half of New York's waterfront and owner of many other valuable city plots. His retreat is a battered brownstone house far up Fifth Avenue, so decrepit that it looks deserted, even haunted. The Colliers and their world of quiet, darkness, and dust had been discovered. What happens when the world finds your hiding place and you're forced to reacclimate to a world that's forgotten you? The fate of the Collier brothers after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? 
In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I would rather stand on the corner bare-ass naked during traffic than have people come into my house. It's not just stuff, it's stuff piled on top of stuff. You try to have a nice house, but it's just not happening for me. As crazy as I was to get it out, she was just as crazy to keep it in. You, you live here? Crazy, crazy, crazy people are like this. I ended up destroying the house that I loved. You do something. You've been promising for four years. I hate it. I call it welcome to my nightmare. That clip is from the first episode of Hoarding Buried Alive on TLC, one of a few television shows about compulsive hoarders people who collect items that most of the world considers useless, who seem unable to stop collecting them, gathering until rooms or their entire homes even are uninhabitable. Hoarding was commonly associated with obsessive-compulsive disorder and was listed as its own specific disorder by the American Psychiatric Association in 2013. One might see compulsive hoarding in New York City as something even more peculiar a city where living spaces are sometimes smaller, but the artifacts spilling out of those rooms are more varied and antique, items possibly passed down by a couple centuries of ancestors. But this doesn't quite explain why the public became so fascinated with the Collier brothers starting in 1938. The press called them hermits, reclusive, mystery men, yet they were besieged with curiosity seekers. Reporters would stand out in front of the house late at night to ambush Langley when he went out on his nightly missions. A wire service reporter in 1941 wrote, quote, Langley Collier is a scarecrow of a man, right out of something by Edgar Allan Poe. His tattered clothing hangs together by the grace of safety pins. His mustache is tangled and his face is bristly and he shuffles his strange way through life like the incarnation of the army of the poor and beaten. The Colliers had indeed turned their gas off many years before, but the house still contained gas meters that were owned by the city. Finally, on April 4, 1939, Con Edison got a court order to forcibly enter the house and remove these meters. Langley, peering out from the second-floor window, demanded that these men leave, and he refused to come down and open the door. So the police came in through the windows and eventually broke the door down themselves. According to the New York Times, quote, 
the disruption of the daily routine of these two men who live in complete isolation with their books and music caused a crowd of 1,000 people to gather. After this incident, Langley redoubled his efforts to make the Collier home impenetrable. Due to the various booby traps and obstacles in the house, Langley would later claim that it took him 30 minutes to climb from the basement to the top floor. Although reclusive, Homer and Langley were surprisingly well-informed about the world. He continued bringing home stacks of newspapers to read to his brother, papers now filled with stories of violence and war. And Langley had managed to engineer a small crystal radio. In 1942, an anonymous call was made to the police, reporting that Homer Collier had died within the house. Two police officers broke into the house that night and found Homer lying in bed, perfectly alive, listening to the radio. According to a report in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, quote, There were no lights and black dust covered everything. Langley had piled boxes and crates in front of all the windows and up the main staircase. There was a dim light from a kerosene lamp on the third floor, where the brothers apparently lived most of the time. The patrolman's uniform was so dusty that when he reported back to the station house, his superior officer relieved him of duty and sent him home. The doors to the Collier Mansion were pried open again later that year. For years, the Colliers had failed to pay the mortgage to the house. And in the summer of 1942, the Bowery Savings Bank threatened to evict the brothers from their home. Now, evictions happen often in New York City, but rarely to people as notorious as the Collier brothers. And again, their predicament made the front pages. By the fall, the state had signed an eviction order. In late September, workmen began carting away debris and chipping away the building's damaged stone cornice, even as Langley shouted bloody murder from the upstairs window. From the Times, quote, Several police radio cars stood guard, both to control the children and adults who stood by, hoping to learn something about the structure regarded as a haunted house, and to assure Langley Collier. Finally, on the morning of November 19, 1942, sheriffs arrived to evict the brothers, or they tried to. Locksmiths attempted to open the front door, but discovered it was secured with wires and could not be unlocked. The door was torn down, but wire netting, boxes, and barrels stood in the way. The same barriers greeted them at the back door, blocked by garbage cans, rusty trunks, and crates. They finally smashed through an upper floor window, and after almost another hour negotiating through a dark and filthy maze, they found Langley, quote, hidden in deep shadow behind a towering mound of dusty boxes, bed springs, packing cases, and ancient odds and ends of furniture. He signed a check paying the mortgage in full, handed it to the deputy and said, Now please go away. I am ill and Homer is ill. Outside, their attorney declared, Everything's settled now. The house is theirs, free and clear. A few weeks before this eviction attempt, Langley had given an unusually candid interview to a Herald Tribune reporter named Herbert C. Lewis. 
who late one night sat on the stoop of 2078 Fifth Avenue, waiting for Langley to emerge from the house. The reporter introduced himself, and to his surprise, Langley said, If you care to walk with me, I wouldn't mind. Lewis later wrote, He started walking, and I tagged along. He walked downtown, talking constantly in a polite, cultivated voice that recalled his breeding and background. He proved to be a man of great urbanity, with an alert, probing mind interested in medicine, music, machinery, physics, radio, and other subjects. The two men walked for hours, talking about the neighborhood legends surrounding the Collier Mansion, about the modern advances they no longer enjoyed, about how they generally got along. Lewis then convinced Collier to join him in a cab ride down to the Herald Tribune offices in Herald Square, where the recluse marveled at the printing presses busily churning out that morning's edition. He even sat for a photograph, In it, he's holding another camera and exhibiting a behavior he was very rarely observed doing. He was smiling. Finally, at two in the morning, the pair headed back up to the Collier's home. From Lewis's article, quote, When he mounted the steps of his house and fumbled for his keys, I made a last effort to be invited inside. I'd like to come in and say hello to your brother, I said. But it was no use. I'm ashamed to ask you in, he told me. He opened the door and entered the hallway, and the darkness swallowed him. The door shut softly. Bolts snapped inside, and a silence fell over the blacked-out house. On March 21, 1947, the police received a phone call from a man identifying himself as Charles Smith, who told them that there was a dead body in the house of 2078 Fifth Avenue. Now, as with other times at this address, the police were unable to open the front door, and the other ways into the house were blocked with immovable stacks of objects. They called the fire department, who raised their ladders to gain entrance by the second-floor windows. By this point, more than a thousand people had gathered on the sidewalks and stoops outside. Over two hours after their arrival, workers managed to break into the home and work their way inside. From the New York Times the following day, quote, Detective Lowry reported that the dead man was in a seated position, wearing only a tattered gray bathrobe. The emaciated body was tentatively identified as Homer Collier. Later that afternoon, the medical examiner reported that the man had been dead 10 hours. The police searched the house for his brother Langley Collier, but they made little progress. Almost every square inch was filled with dust-covered artifacts and stacks of newspapers fashioned into a series of booby-trapped tunnels, a honeycomb made from detritus that Langley had brought into the house. An officer accidentally set off one of these booby traps, raining down a collection of rusty tin cans. But where was Langley? Neighbors reported seeing a man the previous day slipping out the back door, the very door police found impossible to negotiate through. Some believed he was still hiding in the house, confused or afraid to come out. 
After all, it was assumed that Langley would never leave his brother. The police began sifting through the debris, looking for evidence of Langley's whereabouts. He had still not shown up three days later when Homer was laid to rest next to his parents at Cypress Hill Cemetery in Queens. The New York Daily News offered a reward of $1,500 for Langley's whereabouts. Wanted posters went up in hundreds of local hospitals and police precincts. He was reportedly seen everywhere, fishing in the Adirondacks, eating custard in Newark, New Jersey, boarding a bus to Atlantic City. Langley Collier, Are You Here?, ran a headline in a Minneapolis newspaper. Police stopped the New York subway one afternoon and searched every car after a report was made that Langley had been seen on board. As Langley had still not turned up, the house was condemned as a fire hazard. In fact, the third floor had been so damaged by rainwater that the building inspector fell through the floor and was almost killed. And yet to clear stuff away, it was determined that they couldn't begin in the basement either. Inspectors were afraid that the entire house would collapse. Their collection of trash and treasure was literally holding up the building. And so they began by crawling through the skylight and throwing things down into the courtyard behind the house. Tons and tons of things. Bicycles, chandeliers, hoods of cars. Pretty soon, workers decided to isolate items of potential value by carting them to a nearby schoolyard. Over the next few days and weeks, the schoolyard collection became more spectacular, more bizarre, and the possessions of the Collier brothers would make national news. On April 8, 1947, weeks after Homer's body was discovered, they came upon the most gruesome discovery of all. The body of Langley Collier, trapped under tons of clutter, the victim of one of his own booby traps, accidentally triggered while Langley was bringing his brother food. From the New York Daily News on April 9th. New York's weirdest manhunt ended three paces from where it began 18 days earlier. Langley's body was found in debris which had collapsed in a narrow tunnel on the second floor. He lay 10 feet from the spot from where his brother Homer Collier had been found dead. News of the discovery of Langley Collier's body attracted thousands of people to this residential block in Harlem. Their every possession was catalogued. Many would later be purchased by Hubert's Dime Museum and displayed in Times Square including the chair where Homer Collier's body had been discovered. Among the revealed collection, an old Model T, a wide array of firearms, the top of a horse-drawn carriage, bicycles, bowling balls, and baby carriages, thousands and thousands of books, boxes of photographs of pinup girls, a horse's jawbone, an x-ray machine, the fruits of Dr. Collier's medical collection, human organs in jars, and a two-headed fetus, cats and rats, both living and dead, clocks and statues, boxes and boxes of bottles and cans, campaign buttons that were 30 or 40 years old, and the old canoe that Herman Collier rode every morning to Blackwell's Island. 
And so many instruments of so many different kinds, violins from the 18th century, accordions, two organs, and at final count, 14 pianos. This perverse fascination did not go unremarked by the New York Times in an editorial, quote, there is admittedly something unattractive about the avidity with which society now pours over every detail the Collier brothers vigorously withheld from public scrutiny. It is almost as though society were taking revenge upon the brothers for daring to cut the thread that binds man to his fellows. On April 12th, Langley Collier was buried with his brother and his mother and father at Cypress Hill Cemetery. Their graves, to this day, remain unmarked. In July of 1947, the house was demolished. It had deteriorated so completely that it was unable to be saved, and so the Collier's home became a vacant lot. In the 1960s, as an effort to create more open space in crowded urban areas, the administration of Mayor John Lindsay authorized the construction of what became known as Vest Pocket Parks, many parks that were maintained by the city, created from unused lots. Three lots in Harlem were identified as suitable locations for these new experimental parks, and one of these lots was where 2078 Fifth Avenue once stood. In 1965, it became one of New York's smallest parks at about one-third of an acre. In 1998, this mini-park was renovated and renamed Collier Brothers Park. In 2002, however, some residents complained about the name. From the Times that year, quote, What did the Collier Brothers ever do for Harlem? That's the question asked by the Harlem Fifth Avenue Block Association, which seeks to rename the tiny park at the northwest corner of 128th and Fifth Avenue. But the name change was rejected in a close vote. From that same article, quote, The Parks Commissioner says that his agency is flexible on the name of the park, but adds, Sometimes history is written by accident. Fort Tryon Park is named for a British governor, so there are some historic names that are not necessarily celebrated. Not all history is pretty, and many New York children were admonished by their parents to clean their rooms, or else you'll end up like the Collier Brothers. You can visit our website, Bowery Boys History, to see lots of images and even newsreel footage featuring the mansion of the Collier Brothers. Of course, you can always find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I want to give a tip of the hat to all those who support us on Patreon. We're very excited in 2019 to provide you all with new exclusive audio content, such as the Barry Boys Movie Club, which will be coming out in just a couple weeks. Discounts and offers on upcoming events, including some for Barry Boys Walks. Now, speaking of Bowery Boys Walks, you can check out the website BoweryBoysWalks.com to check out the latest lineup of walking tours this winter. 
people have really been enjoying themselves on these on this first batch of walking tours and so you should really check one of them out for yourself there's there's a walk on ladies mile the history of broadway and a stroll through the history of 19th century noho for more information that's boweryboyswalks.com well, next time, I swear, we're back to a normal type of episode. Tom will be here, and all I can say right now is we are headed to Brooklyn. So tune in. Thank you very much for listening, and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.